Who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening. Tonight's service and its accompanying readings give us so much to consider. Now, it seems like that statement could be made at almost any service and about any set of readings from the lectionary. But I think it is more apropos for our Holy Week services and readings than most other times during the year. I mean, just think of the directions that one could go. The significance of washing, Jesus washing his disciples' feet, Judas betraying Jesus, the links between Passover and the Lord's Supper, the links between Passover and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, God's redemption of his people from slavery in Egypt, and God's redemption of his people from the slavery of sin. We could ponder the disciples again arguing about who among them is the greatest right after the institution of Holy Eucharist. I mean, nothing brings people together like an argument about who's the greatest. We could discuss Paul's theology of the Holy Eucharist as described in 1 Corinthians 11. More than a few PhD dissertations have been written on that. Or we could consider the significance of one of the most beautiful verses written in the entire book of Psalms. So mortals ate the bread of angels, for he sent them food enough. And we can ponder how that still happens today, how it will happen in just a few moments. Well, I think you get my point. I think I've just given myself and Father Scott our Maundy Thursday sermon topics for about the next six or seven years. Now, I, I can't go on too long tonight, especially the last time I preached. I stood up here a few minutes that day. So I need to be quick. And I've already spent a few minutes pondering tonight's topic. So what else should be said? What can be left out? What's the most important thing to tell you all tonight? Is not everything Jesus said and did with his disciples on his last night with them the most important thing to tell? Yes. Everything is the most important. And that's the point. Everything matters. It's why we come back here again and again and again to hear the story of God's redemption of all of creation and why we read our Bibles to find ourselves in that story. Because everything matters. It matters that we ponder how Israel was in bondage to the sinful nation Egypt, yet God saw their affliction and heard their cries of distress and came down to deliver them from their oppressors. It matters that I take the time to think about how I am afflicted by a sinful nature that would seek to oppress and enslave and blind me so that my heart cannot see and love the other as myself, but instead my heart turns in on itself, seeking only to gratify its own desires. It matters that we read about Judas betraying his Lord only to realize too late that he has done something that cannot be undone. It matters that we consider how even today we mortals eat the bread of angels in the Holy Eucharist and how that is enough for us as God sends us out to do his work of loving and serving others. 
It all matters. But there is one place that I will land tonight. And I would ask you to think on the disciples' response to the institution of the Holy Eucharist. The illustration of their Lord's supreme love and sacrifice for them and for the whole world. And what was that response? An argument among themselves as to who would be regarded as the greatest. Now their response, it's so characteristic of their time with Jesus. It's partially correct, but almost entirely misguided at the, misguided at the same time. Now, I don't want to stand here and be critical of the 12 simply to make ourselves look good. Like we're so much more in tune with Jesus and his kingdom values. I highlight their misunderstanding so that we might see more of ourselves in them than we realize. And I find it interesting. Only Luke records this argument among the 12. Saints Matthew, Mark, and John are silent about this dispute. But I think we can bring multiple accounts of this last night of Jesus and his disciples together, and we can get at the heart of what Jesus wants them to learn from him. So I want to take a few moments to consider how the unique gospel account in St. Luke and how the unique gospel account in St. John, Jesus washing his disciples' feet, how those two fit together. But first, how were the disciples in any way correct about their future greatness? Well, consider who they were following. They were the primary students of not just any rabbi, not merely a prophet, but the very Messiah of God who was sent to rescue, or save if you prefer, his people Israel. And God's Messiah isn't going to just rescue Israel, but he will rescue the entire world from the grip of the evil one, sin, and even death itself. He is the king of all the world, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the beginning and the end. And since Jesus is all these things, surely some of that glory, honor, power, splendor, and greatness, what's well, going to rub off on his 12 apostles, his closest friends who have been with him from the very beginning? There could hardly be any doubt that they would share in his status as his deputies and representatives here on earth. In times past, Jesus had given them authority to preach, heal the sick, even cast out demons in his name. I think they had good reason to believe that authority and status, also known as greatness, well, that would be there for them in the end. But they were misguided. And this wasn't the first time that this argument had come up between them. Earlier in St. Luke's Gospel, in chapter 9, we read of the, of the 12 arguing about who among them would be the greatest. In that account, Jesus rebuked them by bestowing the greatness associated with him, the greatness they desired, Jesus bestowed it on a child instead of them. And he then gives them the upside-down value that he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. We can also read about their misunderstanding of greatness in chapter 10 of St. Mark's Gospel where James and John asked Jesus to give them seats of honor in his kingdom, one on his left and one on his right. And once again, they're seeking the greatness of Jesus that should be theirs, 
because of their relationship to him. But they don't have a clue. The places of status and honor that these brothers are seeking, it will not be given to those who simply request it. These places of status and honor are given to those who have shown themselves as faithful and obedient servants of God by their self-sacrificial acts of love and mercy, acts that their Lord had exemplified. In that passage, Jesus' correction is summed up in his statement, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we've seen how they could be both right and wrong, as it were, in their attempts to claim this exalted status and authority for themselves. And here in our account, Jesus corrects them by telling them that to be the greatest means to become like the youngest among them. That's another way of saying that to be the great to be the greatest means to become like the ones who receive the least amount of honor in their social context, young children. In that social context, children were not given any sort of high status or position beyond family love and bonds. Likewise, those who, were, who serve at table are among the bottom rung of the ladder of social power, privilege, and status. Again, Jesus teaches the disciples about the upside-down values in God's economy. To be the greatest means that one must become like those of lowest rank and status. Now, beyond giving them an abstract principle to apply, Jesus also teaches in a profound and tangible manner. And this is where I think St. John's account of Jesus washing his disciples' feet enters the story. Now, as I was reading and praying through the passages that describe Jesus last night with the 12, I began to wonder if the practical side of Jesus' statement of correction and identity in Luke 22, 27, but I am among you as the one who serves. I was wondering if that was illustrated in him standing up, removing some of his clothes, wrapping a towel around him, and washing their feet, a job reserved for the servant of the house. Now, a close reading of St. John's account reveals that Jesus did not wash his disciples' feet when they entered the house. That would have been the appropriate time to do it. But he washed their feet during supper, which would not have been the right time to do it. It seems quite plausible that Jesus used this object lesson as a response to their who is the greatest argument. Now, of course, that raises the question whether or not Jesus planned this beforehand or if he was responding in real time. And we'll never know that this side of eternity. But one thing is certain. To claim that one must become like a servant cannot be better illustrated than to wash the feet of those to whom the claim is being made. We like recognition and status. And there is nothing inherently wrong with being recognized for things that deserve it and the appropriate status that comes with such recognition. But more than just liking it, we can begin to crave it. We can begin to obsess over it. An inordinate desire for it can overtake us, and we begin doing the right things for the wrong reasons. Jesus' lesson about greatness, status, 
and serving in a spirit of love and humility. It's worth pondering as we enter into his passion tonight and we consider the offering of himself for the sins of the world. As God's grace perfects our natures, our desires for his ways, thoughts and perspectives grows and we become more like his son. I learned an important lesson about greatness and status and recognition from one of my childhood heroes when I was 14 years old. It was the summer of 1992. And I grew up in this area. I've always been a fan of the team that plays in Washington. Call them what you want. When I was a kid, we called them the Redskins. And my favorite player of all time was a quiet man who lived a quiet life. His name's Art Monk. He played wide receiver for the Redskins. And I love to watch him play. I watched him win Super Bowls. I watched him make Pro Bowls, watched him score touchdowns. He was the greatest. Nothing like me. I was a loud mouth that was going to make a fool of myself. And he was quiet and understated and just went out and played the game. But I loved him. And that summer, he would break the record going on into the fall. He was set to break the record for most catches in a career. And I thought, well, that's going to cement his legacy and status. To use a term today that really didn't exist back then, he would be the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And I was excited for him. He didn't even know I lived, yet I was excited for him. <laughs> so as was our custom in my youth group, we made our annual summer trip down to King's Dominion. I was there with all my friends. We split up, we go ride the rides. We come back together, check in. Some of my friends said, hey, there's some Redskins here today. We got to ride some rides with them. Jed, Art Monk is here. Oh, I was excited. The rest of my day was spent looking for Art Monk. And I didn't find him. <laughs> it was like 9 o'clock at night, and it was time to go home. And we had to be back at the meeting spot. Well, a couple of my friends had helped me out. They found him. They asked him if he would stay where he was, and they were going to get a friend and bring him back to meet, to meet him. I never ran so fast in my life as I did that night. And then I had that moment where it was like, what do you say to this person you admire? And you don't know them, and they don't know you. So sure, it was, hey, I'm your biggest fan. <laughs> it's so great to meet you. And then I thought for a second, and I said, you know, in just a few months, you're going to break the record, and you'll be considered the greatest of all time. How do you, how do you feel about that? And in so many words, what he communicated was, if that happens, that's great. And if not, well, that's okay too. And like Peter correcting Jesus, I said, no, no, no. You don't understand. You will be the greatest. And I think in the same words, he basically communicated, if it happens, that's great. But if not, that's okay too. My time was up. He wanted to go. So I thanked him for his time, and I walked away. And I think I was probably a little confused and thinking, he doesn't get it. And I think he walked away thinking, he doesn't get it. Well, he would go on to break the record. 
And he retired a few seasons after that. And I was sure after his five years of retirement, when he was eligible for the Hall of Fame, first year, first ballot, he's in. No, not at all. Okay, fine, second year. No, not at all. Third's a charm. Not for Art Monk. And it began to be like, wait, what's wrong? What's the problem? He's got the Super Bowl rings. He's got the records. Why is this guy not in the Hall of Fame? Surely the fourth. No. Fifth or sixth? No. It took eight years for him to make the Hall of Fame. So he made it. Would you not know that this quiet man who lived a quiet night or a quiet life, when he stood up to be introduced, he was given the longest standing ovation in the history of the Hall of Fame. Four minutes and four seconds. And he launched into his speech, and he said all the right things. He thanked his coaches, his family, his loved ones, his mentors, his fellow players. He thanked them all. He said everything right. But also tucked into that speech was a sermon. And this is also what he said that night. But in all due respect, as great as this honor is, it's not really what defines who I am or the things that I've been able to accomplish in my life. And even now as a Hall of Famer, the one thing I want to make very clear is that my identity and my security is found in the Lord. And my validation comes in having accepted his son, Jesus Christ, as my personal savior. And what defines me is the word of God. And it's the word of God that will continue to shape me and mold me into the person that he's called me to be. So I've learned a long time ago, never to put my faith or trust in man, for man will always fail you. Man will always disappoint you. But the word of God says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he will never fail you. And that is what I live by and what I stand on. There's a scripture that I think about almost every day, and I've come to personalize to my life. It says, Lord, who am I that you are mindful of me? So I'm very grateful for this honor. And I can stand here before you and say, hey, look at me. Look at what I did. But if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast today in the Lord. For it is because of him that I am here. And I give him thanks and glory and honor for all that he has done for me. I am so thankful for a man like Art Monk, who taught me when I was 14 and taught the rest of the world years later. And I'm glad he's not here because he'd take my job preaching. But you see, he got it. He understood what greatness and what status and what recognition was truly about. He understood what it meant to take the form of a servant. He understood what it meant to be the least in order to be the greatest. May it be for us this evening. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.